Everybody in our world today has a growing sense that things cannot continue much longer as they are. Things are changing. The global community as we have known it is coming to an end. There is something new on the horizon. And we as the people of God, we see Bible prophecy being fulfilled before our very eyes. Uh, the most prominent, of course, is the rebirth of the nation of Israel, an absolute impossibility defying all odds that a people who should be extinct and forgotten like every other nation like them that disappeared a couple thousand years ago, that the Lord not only kept them, but he brought them back into their homeland. And Jesus said that the generation who sees these things would also be the generation that would see his return. I want to turn our attention to the book of Revelation. And this morning what I want to do is I want to introduce a topic that really there's been a lot of interest. I've had people ask me questions over these past several months. And I've just felt as we move into the fall and we consider to move into the things that we feel the Holy Spirit is doing in our life and he's, he's trying to do in our congregation and all of our hearts, that is the purpose for it. It's not just for our own enthusiasm, our own excitement and joy, our own experience. It's not why the Lord is doing it. It begins with us. Revival begins in the house of God. But the purpose of revival is to wake the church so that an awakening can come to our community. That's what he wants to do. It has to start with the people who profess to know him. Because if we don't know him, then anybody outside these walls is not interested in him. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them in wanting to know a God we talk about but whom we don't know. And so it begins by reviving his church and then an awakening comes in our city and I believe in our nation as well. And if it's one of the things I really took away from the time we had uh, as a staff and also before that I had the privilege and I thank you for it. I just feel so blessed as a pastor to be able to take some of these things in. But I was also at the, as you may remember from a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Pentecostal World Conference in Calgary. And just to hear what God is doing around the world and the nations of the world. And again, I'll, I'll repeat these numbers in case you weren't here, but do you realize that there are over 675,000 Pentecostal, baptized in the Holy Spirit, tongue-speaking believers around the world today? And that's just Pentecostal. That's not all of our other brothers and sisters through other churches. Don't believe the lie that the church is on the decline around the world or some other religion is leading the way. That's not happening at all. It's the body of Christ that is exploding, that is growing around the world wherever the people of God are hungry and allowing him to do what it is he comes to do. Turn to Revelation chapter 1 if you have your Bibles, your iPhones. I have the scripture on the screen as well. You can uh, follow along with me, but I, I want to encourage us to read these scriptures responsibly, which means I'll read the first slide and the next slide comes up. You can join me and on we'll go. We're going to read... Uh, the entire chapter of Revelation chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, we read, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel, likely Gabriel, to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Together. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him, oh, I love the scripture, to him who loves us, 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Just, just grasp these words. He has made us a kingdom. He has made us priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, John says, amen. Together, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea, together. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him together, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray by your spirit to give us ears to hear that we may hear what the spirit would say to your church in these days. Lord, we lay aside our bias. We lay aside our preferences. We lay aside, Lord, our lives, our goals, our dreams, everything. And we say, Lord, let your word penetrate our heart that we might be changed and that we might be your people today. And in these last days in which we live, in which our world so desperately needs to see the brilliance of the light of Jesus Christ in his bride. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There are a lot of prominent preachers today that are beginning to speak about last day's events. And in the light of the many things that we're seeing happen around our world today, there are many books being published and people who are preaching on the topic saying that all these things point to the imminent, any moment return of Jesus Christ. How many of us are old enough to remember the Left Behind series? Remember that? Whether the movie or the novel, got a picture there. Um, the Left Behind series, the premise simply was this, was that Jesus Christ is coming one day soon, and when he comes, he's going to take the church away. When he takes the church away, the world that is left behind will enter into a seven-year period during which time they will experience all the judgments of God that are listed in the book of Revelation. And then when the seven years is over, 
Jesus is going to return with us, his church, to this world where he will establish his thousand-year reign. And I want to say how appreciative I really was of that series because, if nothing else, it did communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to many, many people who would not have heard it otherwise. And I believe many had the opportunity to come to Christ through that teaching. There is only one problem, is that there is not a single verse in the entire Bible that explicitly says that Jesus Christ is coming before the seven-year period. Now, take a breath. We're going to look through the scriptures these next several weeks, but there's a purpose for what we're going to be sharing this morning. What if the truth were this? What if the truth was that nobody gets left behind for the tribulation? What if the truth were that everybody is going to go through what commonly today is called the tribulation and doesn't escape? What if before the rapture of the church, the taking away of the church, which we all believe in, what if before that actually takes place, many Christians will escape tribulation the exact same way that Christians have escaped tribulation in past generations, as well as Christians who are escaping uh, tribulation who are going through it today? What if we will escape the same way they did and the way they do today, and that is namely through death? If that is true, let me ask you this. How would it affect the way you live today? If it's true, how would it affect how you respond to what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about today? How would it affect how you process what it is the Holy Spirit is seeking to do in his church today? That to understand that there is a reason for it, number one, because he loves us, but also because of what he's preparing for us. We're going to delve into some of these questions over the next few weeks as we study the book of the Revelation. But I want to be clear from the outset this morning that my interest today is not just to teach a position on end times. That's not my purpose. My purpose is that we come away from God's word with an understanding of two things. Number one, what is Jesus doing in his church today? And what is Jesus wanting to do in you in preparation for what is to come? And number two... What is the church's role in these increasingly dark days in which we live and in the dark days that lie before us? So this morning, I basically want to lay a bit of a foundation. And I'm not going to have time over the next three or four weeks to get into every topic in great depth, but I hope to share enough, to teach enough, that you will understand that you can turn the prophetic books in the Scripture with peace. You can understand it with clarity and with confidence as the Holy Spirit not only teaches you these things, but also as it begins to apply the truth to your life. That's what the Word of God is for. All Scripture is for that reason. And so I want to begin this morning by just addressing two beliefs that I really believe have hindered a lot of believers from approaching this subject. Two beliefs that have been taught for a generation and a half in our denomination and in much of the Western church. And I don't say any of this without any without respect for anybody who has taught anything different than I'm going to share this morning. There are godly men and women who hold a different view than I do. All I ask you to do if you disagree is don't just say, oh, I disagree because I don't like it. But instead say, I disagree because when I read the Bible, this is what I understand. In fact, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Not to be debatish, I'd just love to have your insight. 
I remember a number of years ago, probably about eight or nine years ago, I think might be the last time we did a thorough teaching, maybe it was sooner than that, but I remember doing a series, and a lady in our congregation who's not here, I still love her dearly, she just chose to go elsewhere, and it wasn't because of this, but she chose to go elsewhere uh, later on, a couple years later, but uh, she actually sent a, a, a copy of my sermon to the national office, and she said, here's what our pastor's preaching, will you talk to him? And so the assistant superintendent, and, and that's not a problem. The assistant superintendent gave me a call. He said, Paul, what's up? He said, we used to go to, he was in my class in college. And, uh, and he said, what are you teaching? I said, here's what I'm teaching. He said, that's okay. Not a problem. And so I had to sit down with this lady. And for three hours, we just simply went through the scriptures. Answered every question. Uh, no debate. Just go into the scriptures. She'd have a point. I'd say, okay, listen, what does the word of God say? We'd look at it. And at the end, she'd say, no. And I'd say, what's the problem? Is there something we haven't, we haven't covered? She'd say, no, I just can't believe it's going to happen that way. And I'd say, was well, there a certain scripture? Why? No, you've answered the questions. I just can't believe God would let it happen that way. So, you see, the issue was not the scripture, right? The issue was my preference. The issue was what I'd rather happen or not happen. But one of the reasons we fear uh, the things that the scripture says that are coming in the, in the days ahead is because we forget the purpose of the church. We forget that we are a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are a church full of the Holy Spirit. We are a church that's been called to stand against and to penetrate the darkness and to rescue all those who are lost. Does that kind of sound like the gospel to you? You sound like a kind of uh, deer in the headlights here for a moment. So I just want to mention quickly two beliefs that I really think have hindered a lot of believers from approaching this last day subject. The first simply is this. The first misnomer is that Bible prophecy is a mystery. How many have kind of let themselves believe that? Be honest. I've been there. Yeah, you know, it looks interesting. It makes a great movie, but I don't think anybody but theologians can understand this. Well, I don't believe that. In fact, I was at a conference last spring, and one of the key speakers, he was talking about something else, but he made this passing comment about end times, and everybody kind of chuckled, but it really saddened me. He said, yeah, he said, my view of end times is whatever sermon I heard last. And that kind of sounds, you know, clever, it sounds witty, but the reality is I thought, how sad. One of the most important topics for the people of God to understand in these days in which we live, and yet to be so flippant about it and obviously not interested in the topic. My Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, right? Why? So that the man and woman of God may be what? Complete, lacking nothing, discerning the days in which we live. What that means is that all Scripture is breathed by God. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, right? That we can understand the will of God. What does all mean? Good. It means all. All Scripture is able to be understood, I believe, by all believers. Now, you might say, but the, but the, the study of last day's events, is, it's a profound study. It is. But here's the difference. It's profound, but it's not complicated. It's profound, but it is not a mystery. How many believe the gospel of salvation or the doctrine of salvation is profound? Every hand should be up. Okay, don't sleep yet. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not going to keep you real long, but... Okay, the doctrine of salvation is profound, but can you understand it? Of course you can. 
I mean, you can never fathom the depths of the wonder of our salvation, and yet you can understand enough to respond in a way that shapes your life. Well, in the Bible, the word mystery does not mean secrecy or ambiguity like we think in our English language. The word in the Greek language is mysterion, which simply means a secret revealed. In fact, even Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines mystery as this, a religious truth that can be known by what? Revelation. Right? And that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. He says, behold, what? Look, come here, look. I what? Show you a mystery. Then he proceeds to explain. Why? So that we can understand. It may be profound, but it's not a mystery. So I want to encourage you this morning, when it comes to the study of last things and the church's role in these last days, do not buy into two lies that breed complacency. The number one lie that I hear oftentimes is, you know what, I can't really understand it, but it's all going to pan out. That's called pantheology, okay? That's going to that's gonna hurt you. And the other lie is this. It's not really important what you believe. It's just important that you're ready when Jesus comes. Well, how many know that people who live by that credo, most of them aren't ready for the coming of Jesus, Right? I mean, how many of us would say it's not important that you really understand salvation. What's important is that I'm saved. No, you see, Peter said that we are to be able to give a reason to anybody who asks us why we have this hope in us. And I believe just as much because all Scripture is breathed of God and intended to be understood by the people of God, if we are living in the last of the last days and seeing last days' events begin to unfold, then ought we not be a people to whom anybody who doesn't know the Lord can come and say, what does this mean? On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, Peter didn't say, beats me. I don't know, just a bunch of idiots. I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't even know these guys. They're acting foolish. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days. I will pour out my spirit. And friends, we need to be students of the word of God in these days and understand that it is a lie that the word of God is complicated, that there's anything doctrinally that we cannot understand, that we cannot respond to, and that we cannot explain to those who come asking for the hope that we have. If I was you, I'd be clapping at this point. That was really a great point. I'm just teasing Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, after, by the way, reading the classic rapture passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, remember, the dead in Christ shall rise first, those of us who remain in, you know, alive remain, caught up with the Lord in the air. Right after that, what does he say? Keeping in mind there were no chapters when Paul wrote the letters. Right after what Paul says is this, and you are not children of the night. You are children of the day, that these things will not take you by surprise. Therefore, he says, live as children of the light. Now, when we think about Bible prophecy, which book immediately comes to your mind? Is it the book of the mystery? There's no such book. How many would say it's the book of the Revelation that comes to mind? You can raise your hand. Are you all kind of sleepy this morning? Come on, come on. Get into this, will you? Be awake. Let me know you're here. Let me know you're listening. The book of the Revelation, right? Okay, tell the person beside you not listening. Just raise your hand. The book of the Revelation. Okay, get this. The book of the Revelation. The word revelation, the Greek word, is apocalypsis. Now, contrary to what comes to your mind when I say that, we get the English word apocalypse, yes. But apocalypse does not mean Armageddon. 
Apocalypse does not mean mushroom cloud and the end of the world. Apocalypse means uncovering. It means to discover. It means an unveiling, right? The book of the Revelation means it's a book of what? A revelation. You see, revelation is called a revelation because it's a revelation. There you go. Okay, we're getting on track. I just want us to undersee, uh, to see rather, to understand this is not complicated. In fact, the book of the Revelation begins with these words. Read them with me. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, why? To show his servants. Who's his servants? Raise your hand if you're the servant of God, right? We are his servants. To show his servants the things that must soon take place. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave to him, why? To show to his servants the things that are going to soon take place. In the Greek language, the word soon does not mean shortly. Because you know what you're thinking, oh, that's 2,000 years ago, what's up? No, it doesn't mean shortly. What it means is that as soon as it takes place, it is going to unfold in rapid succession. That's the verb of that word. So when it begins to happen, in a moment we're going to see what triggers that, then it's going to begin to unfold quickly, at least in comparison to the length of human history. And then he says in verse 3, you may remember it, he basically says, blessed is the person who hears the words of these prophecies. Blessed is the person who responds to what he reads. Why? Because he responds in obedience in a way that impacts his life. How in the world can we respond to a mystery that we cannot understand? The fact is the book of Revelation is so named because Jesus is uncovering some very practical information so that we, his church, can be prepared and that we can be proactive. And this is really the heart of what I want to share this morning so that we will begin to respond to what he is doing in our midst, that we will begin to get on track and get traction in the things that he's showing us. You see, we are an entertainment culture. And that bleeds into the church so that when God is moving, when God is showing himself strong, when God is healing somebody. I mean, Pastor Christian mentioned when we were there, there were people literally who had cut themselves. Their whole arms were cut and scarred. And Jesus literally made their arm clean, completely healed, brand new, baby clean. And we can hear those testimonies. And what do we do? Time to switch chalet open, yeah. Friends, there's something in our heart when we hear what God is doing, we see what God is doing. When God uses us, we need to sit up. We need to take attention and say, Lord, what are you doing today? What are you calling me to? What are you calling the church to? Lord, I'm sorry for just being indifferent, being apathetic. Because hear me, saints, newscast, this is not about me. I've got everything I need in Jesus. I'm heaven bound. This is about the lost. And everything he's doing in me and through me is to reach people that he died for. And if I don't care about the lost, then I don't care about the blood of Jesus that was shed for me. I have to care about the lost. And everything he stirs in my heart and is doing in me is for his glory, our relationship, but also for what he wants to do through me. Just real quick, you know, somebody else will say, well, I read, I don't mean this critically, but we all have this happen, we read prophetic books. We say, well, there's so many symbols and stuff. Let me give you a quick a quick lesson here. If something is symbolic in the Scripture, nine times out of ten, 
There's going to be a verse two or three later where it's going to explain what that symbol was, okay? We read, for example, that there were seven gold lampstands that John saw. Then what did Jesus say later on? He said, by the way, those seven gold lampstands are the seven churches. The seven stars are the seven angels that watch over those churches, right? So it's symbolic, but it's not a profound mystery. He explains it later. There's also imagery sometimes prophetic books will use. Uh, for example, when John says that Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire in verse 14. That's just imagery, right? Poetic imagery. We don't know exactly what Jesus is going to look like when we see him. Uh, we know he would be human, glorified, all that. But th there's, there's imagery in the scriptures. And so when you're reading prophetic books, if you come across symbols or imagery, give us some time, you'll be able to understand it. If it's something you don't understand, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Because it's not a big issue. As discerning people of God, you will understand when you begin to see those things take place. But if it's not explained, it's not something you have to worry about at that time. Okay, so we're going to concern ourselves in our study with the order of events that take place, unfold in the days ahead, and most importantly, where the church will be in relation to what the Lord is doing in the church today. But more importantly, I want us to see how these things that will soon take place relate to what it is Jesus is talking about to us about today. And so number one, Bible prophecy is not a mystery. It's not complicated, as we shall see. And number two, another misleading belief involves this phrase, seven-year tribulation. How many have heard that phrase? Seven-year tribulation, or maybe the great tribulation. Now, it's not bad in itself, but it miscommunicates the essence of what that time frame is really all about. Over the last 60, 70 years, the tribulation period has become a very popular expression in the Western church, and it holds to this idea, as we see on this slide, and we'll bring my pretty face up here just in a moment for those in the balcony who are lamenting because you can't see me. We'll be back with you in just a moment. But essentially what it holds is this, is that the whole seven-year period the Bible talks about, it's a period of tribulation. It starts when Jesus comes for his church. We're gone. Seven years of judgment upon the earth. When that's over, Jesus comes back with his saints and with his angels to set up his kingdom. That is what most of us are used to when it comes to the tribulation period or what is sometimes called the great tribulation. Again, the problem is that the Bible nowhere refers to, though it mentions tribulation, great tribulation, it nowhere in the scriptures refers to the seven-year period as the tribulation or the great tribulation. What the seven-year period is referred to in the scriptures is called the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel, and that's a very important distinction. Okay, there are 70 weeks that God prophetically spoke to Daniel for the people of Israel, and uh, we are, what we're waiting for, as I'll explain in just a moment, is for this 70th week of seven years to begin and to experience what it is that's going to take place in there. The purpose is spelled out in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. I'm not going to read it this morning. You can write it down. You can read it yourself. But basically, God tells Daniel that he has predetermined for his people 70 prophetic weeks, 70 sets of seven weeks or 70 sets of seven years, okay? 70 times 7, 490 years. Long story short, during that time, what God is going to do is he's going to bring his people back to him. The Bible says the day is coming when all of Israel will be saved. Israel is not just returned to their homeland. Israel is going to return to Jesus. All of Israel is going to be saved one day. We believe that as Christian people. God's not finished with Israel. And we're going to see as well how Israel and the church's uh, destiny has beautifully dovetailed in these last days. In fact, if there's two people the world hates, 
If there's two people that radical religions hate today, it is Christians and Jews, or what is called your Saturday people and your Sunday people, right? Those are the problems in the world today. You see it in the media today. You see it around the world. Our brothers and sisters are dying everywhere around the world for their faith in Christ. So we see that taking place. So there's this 70-year period, he says, when at the end of it, he says, with, regarding Israel, there will be no more sin, no more rebellion. Once and for all, there will be everlasting righteousness. They will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will receive him as their Savior. Now, again, I'm not going to take time to elaborate on that passage in Daniel 9, but in that prophecy, God shows Daniel that 69 of those 70 weeks will be fulfilled, 483 years, he says, they will be fulfilled those first 69 weeks on the very day that Jesus is crucified. Okay? Bible scholars, all different views agree with that. Jesus was crucified, and when he was, it brought to a close the last of the 69 weeks. Now, God's intention, of course, was that Israel would receive Jesus, right? And then we'd have the 70th week and then usher in his millennial reign. Didn't happen that way, right? We know what happened. In fact, God says to Daniel that when, uh, when or Gabriel, that when uh, Jesus is crucified, he says the anointed one, we know that's Jesus, he will be cut off, crucified, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And that was the image, was it, on the cross? Like, it's all come to an end, right? Even the, even the disciples kind of went back fishing, like, it's over. Nothing's come of this. And so that's, that's what the prophecy says. But we know that Jesus accomplished great things. Because even though Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, what did Jesus do on the day of Pentecost? He birthed his church, right? By the power of the Holy Spirit, over 2,000 years, the church has been the witness that God always intended Israel to be. And today, of course, we live in what is called the church age, which will come to a close when we uh, see Jesus uh, at the end. We'll get to that a little bit later. So there remains this 70th week or seven-year period that is still not fulfilled when God's going to wrap up human history as we've known it. So we all believe that. doesn't matter what stance you take for end times, unless you're, you know, amillennial or you're whatever, some wacky stuff. Um, but essentially, uh, all, all the main schools hold to the fact there is still this seven-year period. What's important to understand in the seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel, is that this 70th week of Daniel, seven years, is divided into three parts. That's what people miss oftentimes. There's three parts, three components of that 70th week. The first is what Jesus referred to as the tribulation. Okay, the scriptures are there. We'll get more to them in the future. But those are a few of the scriptures in which Jesus is talking to his church, talking to his disciples, saying there will come a time of tribulation. He says, don't worry, it's not the end. These things must happen. It's not the end. Okay? Then he says a second thing that will happen at the exact midpoint, three and a half years in. He says, and then there will come a time of great tribulation, a time that has never been nor will ever be again, and if it was not for this time being cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of my elect, his church, I will cut this time short. So we have tribulation, great tribulation, and the third element is the wrath of God. The wrath of God will be poured out toward the end of Daniel's 70th week, okay? So we're going to look at this more in depth down the road and again draw the application of what the Lord is saying to his church, doing in his church in these days. But it's important to understand that despite all the things we see happening today, 
whether it's in the environment, the economy, the cyclones, the weird weather, politicians, whatever is taking place, Brexit, European Union, whatever, despite all the things we see taking place today that are similar to what Jesus forecasted prophetically in the Gospels, we are not living in the tribulation today. Very important to understand. Okay, a lot of sloppy theology out there, and I hear Christians meaning, well, we must be in tribulation. We are not in the tribulation today, okay? These things are similar, but it is not the beginning of Daniel's 70 weeks. Most end times agree that this final seven-year period will begin when Israel does something, and that is when Israel signs a peace covenant with the emerging world leader who we know will be Antichrist. When Israel does that, the clock begins. Why do we say that? Daniel 9.27. The ruler, the Antichrist, will make a treaty with the people. He's talking to Daniel's people, Israel, for a period of one set of seven, the final seven prophetic years of that prophetic week. Okay? So according to Daniel 9.27, I believe that what will trigger the 70th week of Daniel, this final seven-year period, it is not the return of Jesus Christ. It is the emergence of the false Christ who will make a covenant with Israel coincidentally for seven years, right? Because there's seven years left. Now, that leader could emerge tomorrow, that kind of stuff. We don't know the exact time frame. We know things are happening. It looks like, you know, how long can the economy stay the way it is? It's a global bubble economy. How long is that going to stay? Whatever. Uh, and so we don't know exactly when that's going to take place, but according to Daniel, when Israel, who is crying out for peace today, makes a covenant with the false Christ, then there is going to be the beginning of that final seven-year period. And when that seven-year period begins, we're not going to see a whole lot of variation of what we see today. We're not going to see a lot of variation in, in the climate and, you know, those kind of things. We're not going to see a lot of variation in the persecution of the church. What we are going to see is an incredible intensification. Like take, for example, the persecuted church. There's not a whole lot more worse you can do to believers than you're already doing today. Our brothers and sisters are being tortured. They're being raped. They're being mutilated. They're being drowned. They're being beheaded. I can't think of any more heinous crimes that are happening today. And so it's not that those are going to, you know, that are going to be worse than they are today, but the difference is this. The scope of what is happening to the church will be global. That's the difference. It will be global. We live in North America, friends. And I, just, I say this with love, but God help us. We live in North America today as Christians as though our rights and our nationality will protect us. It's not going to protect us. It's not going to protect us. Jesus said you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. And the one who stands to the end will be saved. All nations. So what is Jesus doing in this church today? I'm not going to go into great depth, but I want to return to the opening chapter of Revelation. If you have your Bible or phone, maybe open up to it. I don't have the scriptures right there in front of me. But I really believe that Jesus is unveiling to John this prophecy, not for the purpose of entertainment, not for the purpose of just writing some books or having, you know, some, some series that we can go through, some titillating conversation around the table. Jesus is revealing the prophetic books because he wants there to be a very practical impact on our values as the people of God. He wants there to be a practical impact on our priorities as people who by a show of hands said, we believe that we live in the last of the last days. My question is this, 
Does it show that you believe that? We can say we believe that, but are we living in a way that truly shows people around us, hey, we're not attached to this world. No, no, we don't belong to this world. When John heard Jesus speak in verse 12, he turned and saw seven gold lampstands, the seven churches to whom John was to send this message. They were literal churches at the time of John's writing. But they also speak to every church and every believer down through the age, especially those of us who live in these last days. And what John saw is interesting. He saw seven gold lampstands. They're not candle stands like we typically think of lampstands. They are oil stands, lanterns. That's what was used in his day. They are filled with oil. And what is oil symbolic of in the scriptures? It is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit's presence in our believers' lives, of the Holy Spirit's purity, of the Holy Spirit's power in his last day's people. And I believe that's a message to us in these days in which we live. Now, understand that when the scriptures are written, they're written in a way that we can open our Bibles and we can understand what the Lord is saying. I mean, there's, not, there's no problem with using Bible aids and so on, but it's not complicated. Open the Word of God, read what it is said. In fact, you know what? 90%, I believe, and I just made up that stat, but um, I'm just speaking under the anointing, so just take it for what it is. But, uh, you know, I really believe that 90% of the heresies and the bad teachings we get out of Scripture is simply because the person hasn't read the following verse. If you just read the next two or three verses, a lot of the time it would just, oh, okay, that's what it means. Okay, so it's very important as the people of God that we understand that we can read the Word of God and we can understand it. If there's something you don't understand, study more. Don't just close the book. Holy Spirit, what does this mean? Be a student of the Word of God. You won't be ashamed. And so after you read chapter 1, we come right logically because there were no chapters in those days. We come into chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus begins now to talk about these seven churches that he just mentioned to John. Why? Because he says, I have a revelation that God the Father has given me to show you the things that must soon take place. Talk to these churches, okay? Now let's begin to talk to these seven churches personally because I want to address some things in their midst, in their lives as people and as a church. There are things that I commend them for, they're strong in, they've been faithful in, but there's also things I want to expose because I love them. I want to expose because if I don't expose, in the light of the things that are to come, their compromise will make them vulnerable to falling away. Jesus said in these difficult days, many will fall away. How do you not fall away? You keep your oil full. You stay filled with the Holy Spirit. You stay in love with Jesus. You stay in love with the Word of God and allow the Word of God to shape you. And every time your culture tries to shape you and, and nuance your Christianity and tries to compromise you, the Word of God is right there and cuts through and says, no, that's not you. You have no part in that. You're people of the light. You're people of the day. People around need to see your light. You can't afford to compromise. You can't afford this sin. You can't afford to slack off. You can't afford this apathy. You can't afford this stronghold. You've got to get serious because of the day you are in. You've got to be ready not only for when Jesus comes, you've got to be ready for when the false Christ comes, that you will be able to stand, stand, and take many with you into the kingdom of God because of your witness. I'm not sure where I am, but I've got to wrap up. So Jesus warns him about these things. And then he says, if you don't do these things, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And as I meditated upon that this week, I really felt the Lord saying I could be wrong, but I really felt the Lord impress upon me. That's not punishment. He's not saying, I'm angry at you, so I'm going to take your lampstand. What he's saying is, listen, you need to understand that the Holy Spirit's presence and power is not in your life and not in your midst. You aren't a church. So 
You are no presence anymore. How many understand? We've got a whole lot of churches in our city that meet every Sunday, and nobody even knows they exist. The Lord's not angry at them. He's not saying, I'm going to get at you and take your lamps. And he's just saying, no, you've lost your lamps. You see, when the Holy Spirit left, when you've pushed them away, when you don't want them anymore, then you're, no, you're just not a church. You're a charitable organization, but you're not a church. I share with you a number of years ago, I heard a speaker say they did a survey in the city, a large city in the United States. They did a survey asking people the 10 most uh, popular churches that they knew of in their city. And the church that came back was a huge cathedral downtown. It had been closed for 25 years. It was the most popular church in the entire city. That's what Jesus is saying. A lot of churches in his eyes, you've been closed for 25 years. There's no oil. There's no presence. There's no fire. There's no Holy Spirit activity going on. And friends, I just really believe that we are living in the day when Jesus is walking in the midst of his church and he's revealing those things that not only diminish his presence in our life, but they diminish his power in our life. I don't, mean, I don't mean just power to see great things happen. I mean the power that Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and 8, that he said, you receive power, what? To be my witness. You receive power to stand in the face of whatever comes against you. You won't have to worry about what it is that's coming against you because you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when you feel weak and you feel distant and you feel unsure, what do you do? You press in and be filled again with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and fire, he says. That's the purpose of Pentecost. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. I invite the musicians to come if you want to join me. In, in, in 1906, we know very well, those who are Pentecostal, that our heritage goes back to 1906 in a little mission church called Azusa, on Azusa Street. It's just a little mission hall. In fact, it used to be a Methodist church, and they sold it. It was empty. It became a barn. It became a storage room. And revival broke out in this little house church uh, where, where uh, Pastor Seymour was teaching and preaching the Word of God. Came up from Texas to hold some special meetings with some Nazarenes. And so revival began to break out in that house, and it grew. They needed another meeting place, so they used this mission place, this, this barn, you might say, this old church. Didn't have stained glass windows, didn't have comfortable pews. It just had rough old benches they put together and a dirt floor that they sat on. They had no bench. That's where they sat. And the Holy Spirit moved in such a way that hundreds of thousands of Christians from literally around the world came because they heard there is an experience in the Holy Ghost and power. And they came hungry, and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues, and they experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, that was back in 1906, lasted about 1915, but in 1909, there was a prophecy in Azusa Street, and the prophecy said, and I paraphrase, that 100 years from now, there is coming a revival that will be greater than the Azusa Street. Not only will the same manifestations take place, but also it will be global in this, in this context like never before has it been. But also what was prophesied, and I found this quite disturbing, but I believe it is true, is that three things will characterize the Pentecostal movement in the last days. Number one, they will emphasize power over righteousness. Number two, they will emphasize spiritual gifts over the lordship of Jesus Christ. And number three, they will praise a God to whom they do not pray. Sound familiar? Now, that doesn't mean the gifts of the Holy Spirit aren't for today. That doesn't mean that the power of God is not available and necessary for us today. All the Lord is saying is that in the last days is that we, the Lord can try and try and try to do these things in our midst, but they're always going to dissipate. They're always just going to wash away if we don't cultivate a relationship with Jesus. If Jesus is not our heart, 
if he's not our passion, if we don't long to be with him, if we don't love his word and have his word hidden in our heart, anything God desires to do by the Holy Spirit, it will never take root. It will never accomplish its purpose. The Lord says, I have exalted my word above my name. The word of God has to be the foundation of your life and mine. It has to be allowed to be a sword to come into my life and cut away any sin, any temptation, any grayness, any crap, whatever it may be where the enemy is trying to water me down and compromise me and make me ineffective in these days or make me vulnerable in the days to come. I've got to come before the Lord's word every single day, not just to find a sermon. I've got to come and say, Lord, shape me, teach me, speak to me, save me today. The Word of God. And when the Word of God is foundational, when the Word of God is your love, then you will move in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And you'll move with wisdom and balance and power. And most importantly, you'll move in love. That's what Pentecost is. And friends, it doesn't matter your denomination. I wasn't raised Pentecostal. Who cares? It's not about your denomination. If you're Baptist, Lutheran, Anglican, it doesn't matter. We all have our roots in Acts 2 and 4. All of us were birthed in the church on the day of Pentecost. We are all Pentecostal. Pentecost is for everyone. And what is Pentecost? It's a personal experience with Jesus Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. And I know we may be too sophisticated now in 2019, but can I use the word Holy Ghost? Amen. I hope we're not too slick, that we're not too polished. Amen. That we'd say, oh, Holy Ghost, come with fire. Holy Ghost, we want to speak in tongues. Now we call it a spiritual language. That sounds more dignified, doesn't it? No, I want the Holy Ghost in fire, and I want to speak in tongues. In fact, I was thinking this morning when we were worshiping the Lord, and we began to speak and uh, sing in tongues. I thought, oh, God, bring back the day, because this happened at Azusa Street. Yes, people were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in other tongues, but they also, just like on the day of Pentecost, they spoke in languages that people from around the world understood. English people spoke in Japanese fluently. They, they spoke in every, every language of the world. The exact same thing that happened on the day of Pentecost. And I say, Lord, let it happen again. I thank you for spiritual language. I thank you for tongues. But I want to hear some English people speak in Korean. I want to hear you speak in Chinese. I want to hear you speak in some African dialect, whatever it may be, so that there is no doubt whatsoever that God is in this house. That's what the Lord wants to do in the midst of his people. And that's the message of Revelation. The revelation is that God is raising up a people in these last days. We are not called to be survivalists. We are called to be revivalists. There's going to be a great awakening in these last days. It has already begun. God is already moving among his church. The only question is, is we would say, Lord, let it happen now. Let it happen today. Today. What did John say? Even so. Amen. It may make me uncomfortable. I may not like the theology. Read the word. You'll fall in love with it. You know, I may not like it, but John says, what odds? Jesus is coming. Jesus lives in me. Whatever you say, Lord, I love you. Amen. Amen. Let it happen. Can we stand this morning?